This is episode 254 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 150 additional Shakespeare history interviews from our back catalog when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Dean Snow, author of The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this, That Shakespeare Life, with my friend Cassidy Cash. The lead gets in there and it, it causes hassle at the, the neurosynapses. So nerves can't talk to each other anymore. And that leads to problems with muscle coordination or even senses and sensations. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In her latest book, Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Deaths, Susie Edge writes about the deaths of several of England's monarchs who died in grotesque, weird, or elaborate ways. A formal medical doctor now turned historian, Susie takes an in-depth look at the science behind the deaths of kings and queens of England across a thousand years of history. Today, Susie joins us on the show to discuss the stories of the deaths of some of the most famous monarchs whose lives and deaths touched on the life of William Shakespeare, including Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, and James I of England. This week's episode contains frank medical discussions of gore and violence, including disease and specifics about human demise. While our discussion is both entertaining and academic in nature, the content may be inappropriate for younger listeners. If you're listening in a classroom or where there are child ears present, we recommend you listen to the episode first before sharing it. Dr. Susie Edge trained as a molecular biologist before moving to clinical medicine to spend more time talking to people rather than just bugs and test tubes. She went on to work as a junior doctor in a variety of medical specialties, including infectious diseases, hematology, and trauma and orthopedic surgery. While working as a doctor, she completed a master's in modern history to feed her fascination for the history of the human body and the history of medicine. She lives in the Highlands of Scotland with her husband, their two teenage daughters, and their dog, Scout. Her first book, Mortal Monarchs, is available now wherever books are sold, and you can find direct links to more information on Susie's work and information about Susie in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Susie. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Thank you so much for inviting me to come and have a chat. When Elizabeth was dying, she was severely emaciated, and Susie writes that Elizabeth's reliance on lead-based makeup to hide her scars from childhood smallpox, as well as the lack of good oral hygiene, would all contribute to horrible infections for Elizabeth that ravaged the ailing queen in her final days. Susie, will you explain how the lead, specifically in the ceruse that Elizabeth used, could have contributed to the situation surrounding her death? Lead is particularly nasty, and it's been known for, for thousands of years. It's been known as plumism or satanism. 
over the years. And it it causes problems with the nerves. The lead gets in there and it, it causes hassle at the, the neurosynapses. So nerves can't talk to each other anymore. And that leads to problems with muscle coordination or even senses and sensation. So it's it's not... It's not an immediate, you know, unless it's a huge dose, it's not an immediate problem. But Elizabeth, she was putting this on her face every day and taking it off with and taking it off with mercury as well, which wasn't helping. But it's thought that this this lead was getting it going through her skin and into her system and causing problems with the nerves. And as well, heavy metals, the leads, the mercuries as well, they, they create what we call free radicals, which are really reactive and cause a lot of problems with cell damage, DNA damage, cell membranes. So over time, all of these things inside would, would be breaking down and then leading to, to all these problems that, that she was having. Susie writes that the reports of Elizabeth seeing ghosts might indicate the queen suffered from cancer. Susie, what was it about the reports of Elizabeth's behavior at Richmond Palace specifically that led you to believe she may have had cancer? I don't think it was the ghosts specifically. I think that was more an idea that she was was suffering from a delirium, so an acute an acute uh, thinking problem and maybe even a dementia it's obviously a more longer term thing it was it was more the idea that she was emaciated she was hectic that's really what points to the idea of cancer even now we see people who are suffering with cancer and towards the end of their lives they they just waste away don't they and that's that's really what led us to to think that this might have been a cancer and, and going back to the, the previous talk as well about the lead lead poisoning is known after years to um itself it can lead to cancers of course there's no way of knowing she didn't she didn't allow any autopsy but that in itself led to so much speculation and rumor afterwards so that's what we're doing isn't it we're speculating the next monarch from shakespeare's lifetime is mary queen of scots who died when shakespeare was 22 years old susie i did not expect mary queen of scots to be listed in your book because her death i assumed was pretty straightforward she was executed and and that was the end of it but then i read in your book that her execution was actually botched and i was shocked by this what happened to mary queen of scots at her death you know, I always felt like that as well. I thought I'm never really going to talk much about beheadings because you think they're over really quickly, aren't they? And that's the end of that. So there's not much from a human body's perspective. There's not much to say. But actually, then I got to thinking what else was going on. And it wasn't in the Mary Queen of Scots section. It was more the, the Lady Jane Grey that I talked about what would be happening to her body beforehand, you know, the, the fight or flight response. But, you know, even as you say, Mary Queen of Scots had an interesting this is quite a very popular story with Mary, Queen of Scots. She was sentenced to death by beheading. There was no clean sword like Anne Boleyn had. She faced the axe. But when she was brought to the, blo the block, having gone through this wonderful display of taking her cloak off and there being these undergarments of red Catholic defiance underneath, she, she went to the block. But the axe, it didn't make a good cut the first time. And instead... It sliced into her neck and the executioner wrestled with the axe and pulled it out and he tried again. And in the end, it, it took three chops of the axe to actually remove her head from her body. So this pretty That's horrific horrible. story. Yes, it is. Yeah. There are numerous reports of Mary, Queen of Scots, lips moving after she was finally decapitated. Susie, is there medical evidence to suggest Mary may have been conscious after she was decapitated? Yes, the, the story goes that the executioner, he, he reached out to grab her head and he grabbed it. And, and when he pulled at it, he actually pulled off her wig and underneath she didn't have much hair. But her face was still twitching and she was still talking away. 
There's been there's been loads of studies over the years, the main ones happening during the French Revolution, because at the guillotine there was a, a ready supply of freshly sliced off heads, and doctors would stand there and they'd do experiments. And there was another story of um, uh, Charlotte Corday, who was executed for murder in 1793. She there were suggestions that that she was making a an annoyed look at the executioner who slapped her afterwards. But yeah, there's been suggestions that this can go on for a good 30 seconds afterwards. No one's really got to the bottom of it. But I mean, I just think that this severe drop in blood pressure and the blood flow to the brain would mean the lights would go out. And anyone that's ever fainted will tell you that. The lights go out very fast. Uh, so we might just be dealing with reflexes, which is something happens you know, without the spinal cord, these things can happen in the face. There are always there are lots of stories of, of talkings and, and mutterings and lip movings and eye movements after death. I think it all just feeds into our fascination for, for death and, and what's coming next, the thing that none of us can ever know. When it comes to the death of James I of England, Susie writes that it is hard to tell which killed him faster, the actual disease or the treatments that were used to try and cure him. Susie, what were the methods used to try and heal James I towards the end of his life? And why did they muddy the waters about determining his cause of death? There was there was so much going on with James I in, in terms of his medical history, if you like. But the Stuarts were very... I mean, this is this wasn't just James. This was his grandson Charles II, uh, his granddaughter Anne as well. They were really put through it at the end of their lives, and it was all down to this ancient idea that the the body was made up of these four humours: there was black bile and yellow bile and blood and phlegm. And the thought was that any illness was a result of the imbalance of these humours, and so they tried lots of different things, all the different things that they could try to rebalance the humours. The one that we know about the most would be bleeding. But they were also given, he would have been given emetics to make him sick, to make him vomit up fluids, and also purges to bring the fluids out the other end. And there was also, they uh, they would blister the skin, so they'd do that with either hot irons or with the chemicals that you get from a particular beetle, which is blistering, they put that on the skin and it would produce a blister, which is full of fluid, pop that and the fluid comes out. So so you've got this scenario of trying to rebalance all these things by getting fluids off the body. And Buckingham was accused of poisoning him because he gave him a concoction of his own and all sorts of concoctions were tried with various reasonings. And so that's what makes me say with the Stuarts that often I think the the doctors would come in and they would cause more more harm than good. And, and at the end of the day, a Stuart corpse, I think, would look pretty harrowing with all the things that were done to them before the end. I had not heard about the story of the blistering with a specific kind of beetle. Can you tell us what kind of insect this was that they were using? Obviously, I, I assume it was a poisonous creature. I can't. I can't remember the name of it. it begins oh, with no. a C. Yeah, okay. I um, I do remember actually making a TikTok about it and getting it wrong. <laughs> oh no! Most, well, but it was okay because most people hadn't heard of it. Then they went away and looked it up, and they were like, "You sure about that?" But yeah, it's um, this is fascinating beetle that when it's crushed, it gives off this blistering fluid, and I think that's it's obviously a to protect the beetle itself. Um, okay. You know, it doesn't doesn't want to be touched, and so they would take these beetles and grind them down into a powder that then they put on the skin. And this same thing is used now, uh, not nowadays, but it has been used to um, 
to try and encourage livestock to get them excitable. You know, if you if you if they would take it, then it would come out in the urine and it would it would tickle, if you like, the uh, urethra. So when it's leaving, the livestock might get excited. And actually, there have been some young men who've tried that as well and ended up in a bit of a state in hospital because they've they've taken this powder of the blister beetle to try and get them excited. If you get my drift. Just another reason not to do medical experiments on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Unlike some of the other monarchs Susie writes about, after death, James I's body was submitted to a 17th century version of an autopsy with surprising results. Susie, explain how the examination of James's body differs from what we understand about an autopsy in terms of what it is today. And then tell us whether or not the findings helped poor Buckingham, who was accused of having poisoned the king. Did the findings of the medical examiner absolved Buckingham of his alleged crimes? When it came to autopsies, and I often use the word to describe what was going on after death, but I think most of the time it was more a question of they were preparing the body for burial. And so they were opening up and they were having a look at what was inside. One example of that would actually be uh, Catherine of Aragon. You know, they opened her up. It wasn't an autopsy per se. You know, they were looking to prepare her for burial and found something in her heart. Nowadays, of course, we can we can really go down into the micro. We can look at tox screens to see what Buckingham might have given him. And we can look at cells themselves at, at a microscopic level to see if there were cancers and the like. But they would have just been on the macro. They would have been looking at the whole organs and seeing what was going on with them. So they would have been able to see things like the kidneys. He had a, a, a kidney that was shriveled, they said, and the other one was full of stones. And we know that he was suffering from stones and urinary problems throughout his life. But you can also see, for instance, you can you can, you can see water in the brain. You can see water and frothing in the lungs. There, there, there was this wonderful line in, in, in James's that said, his blood had a melancholic look. And I would love to know what what exactly they saw or whether or not they were they were merely extrapolating. And his head was full of brains, which I thought was another fascinating uh, way of describing what was going on in his skull. I don't know how else you one might describe it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine what else you would think someone's skull should be full of. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's there's not many other options, blood or fluid, I guess, if if they had a stroke. But yeah, his head was full of brains. I almost want it to be a compliment, you know, like, yes, yes. Metaphorically very smart or something. But yes, indeed. Now, you can find other stories of the elaborate hair raising and often mysterious deaths of England's monarchs packed into Susie's latest book. It's called Mortal Monarchs, and we'll place a link to Susie's book in the show notes for today's episode, so that's easy for you to find and go get your copy and read more about these stories. Susie, we are now fully convinced we want to begin with your book when exploring the medical history behind the deaths of some of England's monarchs, but I wonder if you would share with us some additional resources you can recommend, perhaps even ones you used when writing your book, that we can explore when we want to dive into the world of 17th century medical history a little bit further. I think there's one that really stands out that uh, that people would find interesting if this sort of stuff floats their boat. And that's called Medical Downfall of the Tudors. And it's by Sylvia Barbara Soberton. And that looks at the obstetrics and gynaecology issues, as well as treatments, physicians, even epidemics. And of, and of course, it's, it's, it looks a lot at uh, Elizabeth and Mary and, and that era. So that's that's a great one. But there's another one called Royal Poxes and Potions by Raymond Lamont Brown. And that looks a bit further. So it goes back to to beyond in the other direction, 1066, and comes into the the 20th century as well. 
that's a good one to to find out what the royal doctors had been up to over the years. Those are excellent resources. We'll link to these and Susie's book all in the show notes. So stay tuned at the end for the link for where to find those. Susie, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I was expecting this question, of course, and I'm I'm one of these people that flits about from one thing to the exciting next. But I think that I would always come back to something something lovely and gothic like uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula to keep me warm at night. That's an excellent choice for sure. You'd be well well set there. Although I think I would be worried about it being completely dark and having read something <laughs> scary. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm 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 working on something that uh, might be a bit scary in the dark. To be honest, it's uh, it's a book called Vital Organs. It's another non-fiction book, and it's about um, famous body parts that have made history. So we're going to have a look at different stories from around the world, stories about perhaps Van Gogh's ear or uh, Henrietta Lacks and her cells. Napoleon's penis comes up as well in that. So lots of different body parts stories for me next. That sounds like a fascinating book. We can't wait to hear more about that. Susie Edge, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through some of these stories about the deaths of England's monarchs. We really appreciate your time and have had a fun conversation. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. And if you would like to see more details about some of the death stories you heard about of Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, and James I, please be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode. We put more visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about on the show today, along with more information about our guests and the resources they recommend you use to explore today's topic further. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 254. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP254. That Shakespeare Life is supported the same way William Shakespeare funded his work during his lifetime, with the support of our patrons. Listeners just like you power the work we do here to research and produce our show each week. To say thank you for your support, patrons get access to our entire back catalog of shows. That's over 150 additional episodes not included on public listening platforms. Plus, patrons get behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked live on the air, as well as bonus content content, including entire episodes that are only available to patrons. Find all of these things and unlock great bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.